0: check this out. Right out of 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power that means Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Father, that is the whole root, the foundation of our joy today. Though we might be tested by a variety of trials, Lord, we know that in all things... That you are simply working out within us an unshakable faith a faith that cannot be defiled that cannot be rocked by anything that's going on in this world why because you <laughs> rose from the dead to give us new life that is our hope that is the source of our joy and lord i pray that today as we open your word and as we continue to worship, that this wouldn't just be something that we know about in our minds, but that it'll be something that sinks down deep into us and begins to animate our lives. That the joy isn't just something we talk about, but it is something that begins to flow out of us. It becomes a natural part of us. And we become marked by joy as your people, thus speaking a different word than the despairing word that the world around us is living in right now. We thank you so much that no matter what happens in this life, that we have an inheritance that is kept for us because of what you have done for us. We praise you we love you and you are the evidence that all graves ultimately you make in the gardens in Jesus mighty name and everybody said amen. amen amen. I don't know about you guys but I just need to come in here and focus on Jesus a bit <laughs> I, my phone, the news, everything else going on in the world and I, I've been given that way too much time and I think, thank you very much, Michael. I think the opportunity we have to come in here and celebrate who our God is, I hope it brings as much life to your soul as it's bringing to mine. So, we are, first off, thank you guys. Before I just dive in, I, I want to really thank you guys so much for your kindness, for the gift. Thank you to the diaconate. Thank you to the Roskowski's. I thank you to everybody who contributed to be a part of that. It really is a privilege uh, to serve here with you. Uh, and the, the ways that you love us, man, it just makes it fun. So thank you so much for the chance we have to serve Jesus together. Um, and as we jump into God's Word today, we're back in the book of good old Nehemiah. Over the past month, we've been following this remarkable Old Testament story of how God uses His people to rebuild their ruined city. Now, believe it or not, we only have two more weeks left in this book because Advent is coming in two weeks. But Nehemiah has 13 chapters, so we clearly won't be able to get to all of the book. I would encourage you to, to dig in and read it on your own if you want. But in these, this week and next week, we're going to hit on what I see as, as vital components Of what what it takes to be a community that is being restored in the image of God. So, so far, we've covered the first five chapters of Nehemiah. And we saw that despite decades of devastation, despair, self-doubt, threats from their enemies, a poor harvest, greedy nobles, economic injustice within their own community. The Israelites finally restored the city's broken down walls under Nehemiah's leadership. It took them over 50 days. And they left their jobs, their families, to give their whole selves to this job until finally, ta-da, it's finished. I feel like we should clap or something for that. I, don't know. I, know, I, know, I know it's been 2,400 years, but, but seriously, it's amazing. One thing I keep forgetting to show you guys is this is actually a picture of Nehemiah's wall. Uh, We went to Jerusalem uh, in 2019. Thanks, Heather Fullerton, for, for reminding me about this picture. This is a picture of Nehemiah's wall. And you can see that they used a lot of rubble to rebuild that wall. But seeing that picture, what's amazing to me is it reminds us that this isn't fiction. That a real God did this in a real place among real people, his people. And if he did that then, he does it now. And see, the remarkable thing, though, it may not look like much now. But then, in 450 B.C., for the people living in Jerusalem, this was huge. Because now that the wall was finished, they no longer had to endure the taunts of their enemies. They could get some sweet sleep at night in a safe city. Now they could dream of a future for their own kids and their families. It was huge. But what Nehemiah, if you notice, it was finished in Nehemiah chapter 6. There's 13 chapters So God's not done. Rebuilding the wall was step one of restoration. But see, God built something on the outside of them. But ultimately, he was seeking to build an unshakable faith within them. See, Nehemiah's ultimate goal was not just to rebuild the wall, but to revitalize within the people of God an unshakable trust and faith in him. During World War II, when the Nazis were incessantly bombing London, the British king, King George VI, maybe you've seen King's Speech, right? The movie King's Speech is about King George VI. But he said to them, he said, It is not the walls that make the city, but the people who live within them. And what he was basically saying is the, the physical walls of our city may crumble. He said, what actually establishes us? Is that intangible aspect of our character that is within us? Today, as we feel the shifting sands of government systems changing, today, as we crave for for a calmer and more consistent time, in a time where we've been rocked and we've been tested. We can trust that God is at work in our external circumstances and we certainly keep praying for that. But ultimately knowing that throughout it all, God is seeking to build something not just outside of us but within us. An unshakable, determined faith. And for the Israelites, whether they were passing through the desert under Moses. Whether they were standing in the glory of Solomon in the the high days, the great days of Jerusalem. Or whether they were rebuilding the walls In Jerusalem, God was always looking for people whose hearts were completely his. That's always been his goal. No matter the season, no matter the circumstance. So my question though is, how does he build or how do we participate with him as he builds something intangible like trust? If he told me today to go build a wall... I'm not handy. I would go to YouTube and I would watch a ton of videos and try to figure out how to do it step by step. But how do we build something intangible like trust? How is it that God builds an unshakable resolve within us no matter the circumstances that we are in? So listen, if you're burned low today, if you're tired, if you're down, Then I want you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Because I want to show you something that, man, it's it's taken me far too long to actually see. But before we do that, can we pray? So, Father God, we begin by just saying, uh, Will you give us a teachable heart right now? It's so easy for me to go to your word and say, Oh, man, I know exactly who needs to hear that. Instead of allowing you to open my heart and show me where you want to speak to my life. But Lord, you've been graciously working in my heart and my life. And I trust that you're graciously working within all of us. And so may your spirit speak through your word right now. And may our hearts and our minds, we just say together, you're welcome here. And you're welcome to speak to each of us. In Jesus' mighty name and everybody said, amen. All right, so by the time we get to Nehemiah 8, right? For decades, literally decades, the Israelites have lived in shame and ridicule until God finally strengthens them to rebuild that defense wall that every ancient city of that day needed to be safe. But like I said, God isn't done. He needed them to know that it's not ultimately the wall, or the government, or the economy, or their jobs, or the circumstances that, give, that allow them to stand steady. It's him. But how does he begin to show them that? How does he begin to open their eyes to see that? And how do we even start to become an unshakable community of faith no matter what? Let me just start here. Step one. God's word is always going to be at the center of any unshakable community all right so right from the beginning right from the start the the, the wall's done and right away the people go and they say all right as one people like we need to know who our god is and so they they, they grab the priest as one one people they grab the priest ezra they gather at the water gate and they say all right we can't read so will you read the, the law to us because we need to know who he is. And so Ezra gathers them all together and he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the, on the first day of the seventh month. And it says that they even gathered some priests. And it wasn't just a religious exercise, right? Like, he, they had some priests walk around as he read the law. And they, they said, do you understand this? And they would seek to help each person try to understand what it is that they were reading. Why? Because the people needed to know who their God was and how he has called them to live. But the initial effect of God's word is interesting. Because when they heard God's word, their their initial reaction was not joy. It was grief. As they heard and understood who God was and how he called them to live, their reaction was, oh my goodness, That is not me, and we haven't been living that way. And see, we read the Bible to inspire us, and that's good, but we're also meant to allow God's Word to read us. When we read God's Word, yes, it is full of all kinds of inspiration, but it's also meant to act like a mirror. And then oftentimes when I see God's faithfulness, I can't help but see my fickleness. When I see God's love, I can't help but see my pride in return. Hebrews puts it this way: it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Point is, this these aren't just words on a page. This is the inspired word of the holy God who who needs to expose our hearts on the way to making us more like him. For thousands of years, God has been speaking to his people through his word. Now, we do not worship the Bible, but we cling tight to it. Because we know that in it, the God of the universe, our creator, has revealed himself to us and shown us the way of life. It reminds me of an old World War II story where there's an expert in London who's speaking to a soldier out on the field. And the soldier is surrounded by enemies in the middle of combat and he's trying to disarm a bomb. And the expert is trying to give him step-by-step instructions on how to disarm this bomb. Do you think that soldier listened? Do you think he didn't just listen to hear but listen to understand? Yeah, because his very life depended on it. And if we know that this holds the very path of life, ought we not to cling to it with the same attentiveness and not just a desire to just, I got my devotion in, but to understand it. Listen, those of you who say, well, I don't know. I'll let other people understand the Bible for me. That's a cop-out. And if you need to know resources for how to understand your Bible better, come see me. I love to show you a few. And not just things that overwhelm you. But things that actually start wherever you are. But we're meant to go to His Word. Because we know that in it is the path of life. Therefore, if we're going to be an unshakable community... If we're going to have an unshakable faith, then we consistently gather as a single-minded community seeking to honor, understand, and apply His Word. Now, when I say single-minded, I don't mean that I expect everybody in here to have the same interpretation of every single passage in the Bible. Right? We're different. We come from different perspectives. But what we are talking about is that we all come to God's Word with a teachable posture. I'm not coming to God's word and say, oh man, I can't wait till my spouse hears this. Now our marriage is going to get better. Or man, like, you know what? Like, I feel a little guilty about some things I'm doing. I'll just find a verse that justifies it. (laughs) But really, we come with a teachable, open heart before it, for it's the words of life. Now, If you've been coming to Trinity for a while, you're probably not surprised by anything I just said. We talk about the importance of Scripture a lot and how vital it is. But the question I want to go from here, and the one that I'm truly interested in this morning, is how do we know if God's Word is actually changing us? How do we know if His Word is sinking in deep and growing in an unshakable faith Within us, And this, as I looked at Nehemiah chapter 8, this surprised me. This caught me off guard. Because ultimately, Nehemiah says, it's God's enduring joy is the evidence of an unshakable faith. Check this out. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. I'm going to read it to you. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. See, initially when God's word exposes the sin in our hearts, it's actually proper to grieve. Because sin does rob us from the life that God has for us, and those around us. But Nehemiah is telling them, don't stay there. Don't just remain there. God doesn't expose your sin so that we'll sit in the grief and the guilt. He exposes it ultimately to lead us to a real joy. See, the people at this time and age, when, when, they, gr- when they grieved, they're very different from our culture. We have like this British politeness when we cry. Right, we don't want anybody to see. In that culture, like, like they made a scene about it. And so he's saying, whoa, whoa, calm down, stop weeping. I want you to know the joy of the Lord. Is he greater than temporal happiness? Joy is the enduring satisfaction in being eternally united with our God. We all know that we get a picture of heaven. And we know that heaven is going to be a space and time where it's just nothing but joy surges through our being. But do we realize that God wants to share that joy with us here and now too? Not just one day. But for a lot of us, the words God and joy just don't fit together in our minds. We understand God and disappointed, God and annoyed, God and angry, God and I don't care. I don't know, right? Like we we, we understand that, but God and joy? I don't know. Because somewhere along the way, and this is the reason why I think that is, somewhere along the way we got it stuck in our minds That it's God's job to reveal to us all the things we do wrong, and it's our job to fix it. That God's acceptance is somehow being held out until we finally gotten our act together. Maybe you grew up in certain traditions or in certain families that intentionally or not somewhat reinforce this idea that, that God is disappointed in you until you clean yourself up. Or some of you, you may have grown up in great families. Right? in Great church traditions, but you still have this incessant inner critic that says, man, you're a mess. <laughs> Get it together. You're never going to be good enough. And when this is the, the part of who we are, and this is the tradition we come from, we open God's word, and it, then it looks at us like a mirror, and all we can do is look at the guilt, and look at the ways we don't measure up, and just feel like, Ugh. Now I need to jump back on the treadmill of being a good person again. You looked in the mirror. You saw your spiritual flabbiness. I better go get fit. I got a lot of work to do. And so it feels like this whole relationship with God thing is just him holding a standard over your head that you can never truly reach. And the only thing keeping you reaching is guilt or the fear of public shame but not joy. And in light of our sin, when we see our sin... It's so easy to jump on, pick up that burden of trying to clean ourselves up. But in return, it creates an empty, joyless religion where we believe that God loves us only if we deserve it. And when we, when we haven't done enough or when we've messed up, we just get busy trying to fix ourselves or hide our faults so that no one finds out. Or if we don't want to face our mess, we just end up pointing to other people and saying, well, they're the mess, not me. That doesn't happen in church though, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) no. But none of this is joy. It's an impossible burden of self-repair. And for a lot of people, you may know some people who have walked away from church and walked away from God completely because this was their impression of what Christianity was. Perhaps they were just tired of feeling guilty all the time. Tired of feeling like people were looking down on them. So they said, you know what? I don't need God or the Bible to be a good person. I'm just going to adopt my own standards and be perfectly fine with that. What's good for you is good for you. But you know, just because you walk away from God and walk away from his word doesn't mean that the inner critic walks away. And just because you've adopted your own standards of what a good person might be doesn't mean that you're not often faced with the fact that you still don't live up to your own standards. Or when you don't want to face up to the fact that you aren't living up to your own standards, you still don't feel this moral superiority to other people around you. Again, there's still no joy. There's still no joy. But here's the thing, when, when God, like a mirror, exposes to us the nature of our own hearts, we see the problem, but that's only the first part of the message. And we fail to see that God in his joy has also provided a what? Solution. The people are grieving because they saw their sin, but they failed to see who God was. And so Nehemiah says right from the beginning, he says, The joy of the Lord is your Strength. Now, let me, let, me, let me hit on this phrase for a second, because this is one of those verses that I've taken out of context a bajillion times. And I've, I've used, I've never really stopped to dig in and understand what it truly means. And so I want to unpack this a bit for us. And I hope that it hits you like it hit me. So first, looking at that first part of that phrase, the joy of the Lord. I want you to realize that it, he's talking about the Lord's joy. This is joy belonging to God. We often say, yeah, God is a God of love, but do we often stop to consider his joy? That God is a God of joy? Genesis chapter 1, when God created the earth, he said it's good and it's very good. And you're able to hear the echoes of the joy of an artist at work. 1 Chronicles 16 says strength and joy are in his place my question is according to god's word what brings god the greatest joy please please hear this zephaniah 317 the lord your god is in your midst the mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness what brings him joy Jesus said in Luke 15, he said God is like the man or the shepherd who rejoiced when he found that one lost sheep out of a hundred. He's like the man who found that lost coin. He's like the father whose son ran away and then comes back all dirty. But the father sprinted out like a kid headed for a Christmas tree to meet his son. What brings a surge of joy through the being of God? Not when we've cleaned ourselves up, but when we come home to Him. Please let that sink in. What brings God joy? When we come home. In fact, This gate brings him so much joy that despite the chasm of sin that separated us from him, he bridged the divide to stand in our place. Despite the stain of guilt and sin that marred our souls, he poured out his blood that we might be washed cleaner than snow. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross to bring us home. But yet we spend so much time thinking that this God thing is about us trying to clean ourselves up before him when his joy is I've already provided the solution that you can come home to me. And Nehemiah says it is the Lord's joy. He says this is our unshakable strength. Actually, I want you to get this because this blew me away too. The original word for strength here in this verse, can be translated fortress, refuge, dare I say, defense walls. That he is saying the Lord's joy is really our walls of safety. Come on, somebody. I know, I know you're just sinking in. Because really, Nehemiah is saying, look, look at this wall. This thing's physically great. Right? Great job, everybody. This is going to establish us for a long time. But the true source of your security is not in this physical thing. It's in the God who enjoys blessing you. The God provided the wall for them. He says, but if you're not careful, you're going to start placing your trust in the wall, in the government in the economy, in your job, more than in the God who provides it. And this has always been a temptation for us as human beings, that we want to place our trust in the gifts or the effects of God instead of the joyful giver. But what makes us unshakable is the realization that the lasting joy of God is that we would know Him, come to Him, and that he wants to draw us into relationship with him. So instead of guilt ridden self repair religion, God wants to share his joy with us. Jesus proclaimed, he said, These things that I've spoken to you, I've said that my joy may be in you and your joy might be full. That's the picture of a cup that is overflowing with goodness. (laughs) Pulling on the same theme, the 400-year-old Westminster Catechism makes this powerful statement. It says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But I love love what Pastor John Piper, he he modifies this a little bit. I totally think, think it's amazing. He says, Actually, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You catch that? The highest goal for us, the mark of maturity, is not grief, it's not guilt, it's the presence of God's joy. And how do we know? What is the evidence that God's joy has actually started to seep in to our culture as a community? How do we know? What are the evidences of his joy spilling out of us? Or we could even say, what are some ways that we we can continue to infuse joy within us as God's people? And Nehemiah shows us when, when, when God's joy overflows out of us, celebration and generosity begin to distinguish who we are. So, as a response to who God was, Nehemiah says, All right, everybody, stop weeping. We're about to celebrate. And this is my own translation. He says, Get out the filet mignon. Get out the brisket that's been smoking for 11 hours. Get out that lamb leg that's soaked in, I don't know, whatever Frenchie sauce you want. Right? Get out the the, the dusty bottles from the basement. I want you to... We're going to throw a party. We're going to celebrate. And really, this moment, that first day of the seventh month that this whole thing is happening, is actually what the the Jews call the Feast of Trumpets. Where they celebrate the, the day that the trumpets and the smoke billowed on top of Mount Sinai and God said, you're going to be my people. And so in this moment, they're celebrating, we are gods. Isn't this amazing? And see, here's the thing that, 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 that I see in this. Nobody should know how to party better than people who belong to Jesus. Somewhere along the way, we've gotten this bad rap that Christians are party poopers. And, and we've allowed society to define a party as getting trashed and completely out of our minds. But what we see in this is to say, no, no, no. We are so fully in our right minds. We know exactly who we are. We are secure in it. We are loving God, loving each other. Now that's a party. And ultimately, do we realize that every time we come together on a Sunday morning, it's, we're celebrating who God is. That every time we sit down before a meal and we thank God for that meal, that we're celebrating how God has provided for us. My trust is not in this food. My trust is in the God who provided it. I want to encourage you, before you start praying before your meal, start saying, God, thank you that you enjoy providing for me. How will that change your thoughts? How will that change your mind? But see, like when we start incorporating these little habits of celebration into our normal rhythms, we're allowing God to fill us up with his joy these are all regular parts of learning to fill up with his joy and as the outside world as those who witness our lives together see the joy within us don't you think that's what they want to be a part of that's far more attractive than guilt-ridden christian do-it-yourself self-repair christianity and then nehemiah also includes he says in addition to being a community that celebrates He said, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Because when God's joy overflows from us, we naturally become cheerful givers. The Apostle Paul, many years later, spoke of several churches in Macedonia. He said, and in the midst of it, there are these churches who were going through a severe test of affliction, going through some hard times. They did not have a lot of money, actually extreme poverty. He said, but the abundance of joy overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. The joy and generosity go hand in hand. And sometimes when we allow God to to loosen our grip (laughs) on our stuff, And allow him to show us how to be generous. All of a sudden we find that his joy meets us right in that place. Those of you who have done that say amen. Because you know that's true. And when God's joy flows toward us. It flows into us. And the thing is when God's joy flows into us. It can't help but flow out of us. Because God's joy is also looking to fill other people. To bring them home as well. The Lord enjoys filling us with his joy so it can overflow into our burdened world. I'm going to wrap it up with this. In 1505, there was a young German man named Martin Luther who was walking home one day until a severe thunderstorm broke out. The lightning was so bad he thought he was going to die and he made a deal with God. He said, God, if you get me out of this alive, says I'll become a monk. Well, the fact that we're hearing the story means that God got him out alive. So he got out, and he went into the monastery. But in being in the monastery, Martin Luther was so like just overwhelmed by his guilt, his problems, and instead of seeing who God was in that moment, he did the only thing he knew to do. Was he said, "I'll just take more sacraments. I'll, I'll practice more penance. I'll fast." When he noticed that that wasn't really dispelling the, the, the sinful thoughts in his mind, he says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll sleep winter nights without a blanket. I'll take a whip and whip myself. He did everything he knew humanly possible to try to attain the perfect standard on his own. Until one day, he read the book of Romans. And he saw that the book of Romans did, it laid out the righteous standard of God and how all people fell short. But then he saw the rest of the story. How God also provided the righteous provision for salvation in Christ who became the sacrifice for us if we would believe. And for the first time in his life, Luther felt the burden of his own sin be lifted off of his shoulders in place of freedom of joy. And from that, Luther said, the heart overflows with gladness and leaps and dances for the joy it has found in God. In this experience, the Holy Spirit is active and has taught us in the flesh flash of a moment the deep secret of joy you will have as much joy and laughter in life as you have faith in God that's what God wants for you and Martin Luther as many of you already know was the one who began the whole Protestant Reformation and we are in the theological stream (laughs) we come because of what God did in his work his life And you know, I've been following Jesus for a couple decades, but it's taken me far too long to realize this. I have spent far too much time wallowing in my guilt when God says, my joy is your strength. I have spent far too long trying to fix myself and looking at all the ways and condemning myself when God says, my son, I just want you to come home. Because nothing brings our God greater joy than just being with us. And for us to have an open, humble heart before Him. And in doing that, that's where He fills us with His joy. And my prayer for this community, for all of us, is that anyone who encounters us, that they will notice the unshakable, shameless, unapologetic joy, because we know who our God is. And if there's anyone here watching online, you do not know who God is. I beg you, turn your heart over to him. That doesn't mean that all the circumstances of life will automatically get better. But he promises that as we open our hearts fully to him, he will flood us with heaven's joy. The Lord enjoys filling us with his joy. So it can overflow into our burdened world. Will you stand up with me? Father, (laughs) even as I was preparing this message this week, I found myself just naturally slipping back into uh, my own guilt, my own attempts to try to fix myself, my own attempts to to try try to make myself presentable to you. But Lord, as we consistently go to your word, and as we center ourselves upon it, yes, we see ourselves compared to who you are. But God, may we not stop at the problem. May we move on and see that you've also provided the solution. And you've done so joyfully, because your heart, your greatest desire, is that we would know you. And So Lord for those of us who are having a tough time believing that you truly do enjoy being with us and that you enjoy when we come home to you. God, I pray that in this moment, your spirit would just affirm to us, each of us, your love. Fill us with your joy that we may be marked by your celebration and generosity. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said